Looking good, looking good. Like you know we should. Looking good today. You're listening to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast. We're the five going strong. Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast, episode number 17. Scott Morrison along with the coach. Iron Mike, and uh, you're on the move. You're a traveling man, and you're back in Florida. Yeah, I am. I had a chance to watch the leaves change uh, on Georgian Bay at the cottage and put the boats away, the docks in, and, and uh, fertilize the, the lawn, and now I'm back in Florida enjoying some sunny, warm weather. And you don't have to rake the leaves. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a backyard full of them. Um, so this crazy year... Uh, you know, obviously it's been a tragic year on many levels and, and crazy and what we've seen and how to pull off a hockey season and Stanley Cup playoffs and a Stanley Cup final and most recently a draft done virtually. Did you see any of that and how strange was it? I really only saw the first pick overall. It was strange, uh, interesting uh, dynamics in terms of uh, some of the selection process. Um, I understand it took quite some time. And in fact, uh, uh, it really was uh, arduous in terms of trying to get through that process. So again, difficult times, find a solution, but it may not be the best in terms of what we've uh, experienced in the past. Well, a great thrill still for the kids to be selected, but, uh, you know, tough and obviously unavoidable that they couldn't be in an arena with a lot of people, a lot of other players and families, and uh, to have that moment of be able to walk down, put on the sweater, be on the stage, meet the team, meet all the personnel. So tough for the kids, but uh, that time will come. It will, and, and we'll get over this. The one thing I did do, Scott, was interesting. I, I saw a little bit of review of 203. I was a general manager in Florida. We, put, we picked uh, Nathan Horton. And then I'm watching the draft and all these great players are coming up later and later. And I'm thinking to myself, if I was the manager today, I'd be asking our, our scouts uh, a little bit more about uh, who the possibilities were, because I really let, let them do their job, let them uh, make the selection. Uh, but then we see Getzloff late in the round. I'm saying, oh, my goodness, that would have been a game changer for any franchise. So what, tell us some draft stories just off the top. Was there one pick that just amazed you at some point? Or, I mean, you drafted, uh, uh, you've drafted high when you were at Florida. You picked uh, up Ronick. We told that story about the, the Montreal draft. The most interesting story was Ronick, which we told last week. But uh, uh, it, it, it was an interesting process. I think I have better stories about trades than I do about the draft. Uh, the draft, you know, and I, I was also reviewing the 203, and there were some players that were picked in early in the first round, never played. So that always happens as well. It'd be interesting to review those stats uh, and, you know, discover that uh, uh, late draft picks, they, they were going to be going to the second round and showing some of the great players that were drafted in the second round, uh, Chris Chelios, I believe, being one of them. So, uh, I think that the message for the young players is if you're drafted, you have an opportunity. It doesn't matter what round because it's not 100% uh, guaranteed because you were drafted in the first round, for example, that you're going to play in the NHL. But uh, there's been some great stories about late drafts. Steve Larmer is one of my best stories 
uh, fourth rounder, I believe, and had an unbelievable career. And he's an unbelievable player, was an unbelievable player in the NHL for years. And what we're going to talk about, Steve, not on this episode, but in a future episode, and uh, I think we've mentioned it in prior uh, podcasts that uh, a guy that we think should one day be in the in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But we have been talking in the recent shows about uh, some of the great players that uh, you coach, be it in the NHL, Canada Cups, various tournaments, and uh, we're going to continue with that theme, and I'll, and I'll repeat that in future episodes, we're going to have some of these players visit with us on the shows and we'll tell some of the stories and uh, some of the moments that, uh, that you've had to share on these podcasts. So some good, good fun still ahead. So uh, let's start with, uh, we'll stay in the Chicago time and uh, a character in his own right, a great goaltender, uh, Hall of Famer in 2011, Eddie Belfour. Eddie was a great story, uh, and also it's it's a great uh, comparison to Ron Hextall. We talked about Ron Hextall earlier in our podcast, but uh, Eddie uh, came to me and uh, was a young goaltender and wasn't quite ready for two consecutive years. Now, that was a very difficult decision to make considering the goaltenders that we had in place to play, although we went to the Final Four, two of those years, uh, it took the third year for Eddie. So one year he went to Saginaw and one year he went and played for team Canada. And uh, he said he was ready. I said, Eddie, I don't think you're quite ready. Uh, so obviously with patience, and that's a very difficult thing to do when you're the coach as well as the GM to send a goaltender of that caliber away two consecutive years. But uh one great influence on Eddie uh, was uh, uh, Tretiak, who he employed from, uh, from Russia. The famous Soviet Union uh, goaltender had such a great impact on him in terms of, uh, of uh, ability in developing him and, and uh, Dominic Hasek. Uh, the one story I can tell about the, the three of them and, and and Trechak uh, used to always come out full gear for practices, which is very unusual. Here's this Hall of Fame goaltender in his own right, the great, one of the greatest goaltenders ever. He comes out full practice, in practice, and I call the group together in the middle of the ice, and I said, we got great news, which is good news and bad news. And they said, well, what's, what's the good news? I said, we got Trechak as our goaltending coach, absolutely unbelievable. And they said, well, what's the bad news? I said, he's better than both Hasek and Belfort. So <laughs> they all got a kick out of that. But yeah, Eddie was an interesting story. Uh, a battler, a fighter, a competitor. Um, interesting also that uh, the day that he was given the phone call and nominated into the Hall of Fame, I was at the cottage kitchen table and the phone rang. My sister picked it up and said, Mike, it's for you. And uh, I said, well, who is it? Do you have any ideas? She says, no. And I picked up the phone and as she handed it to me and it was Ed Balfour. He said, Mike, I just want to thank you very much for putting me in the Hall of Fame. So a very gracious guy uh, went on to win a Stanley Cup in Dallas. And uh, a character off the ice, he, the little quirky thing that he would do. I think we told about Hextall, and I'm not sure if we did, but I'll repeat it. Hextall used to take one pad off 
and put it on the floor in between periods and, and focus on, on the pad with one pad on, one pad off, and he looked at the pad. Well, Eddie's ritual was that nobody could touch his skates. And game day, after the pregame morning skate, he would probably sharpen those skates for an hour. And all he was doing was focusing and getting himself ready to play. So uh, he had some real quirky rituals, as, as most goalies do, and we can talk about them someday at length. But, uh, uh, again, that was his ritual to get, to, to get better. The other one that was most noteworthy in terms of exposure between the two of us was the televised game where I pulled Eddie. And then there was a confrontation on the bench and uh, he wasn't very happy with me. He's barking at me. And I walked down and I grabbed him by the shoulder and his Jersey. And I said, Eddie, do you remember the deal we made? He said, what deal? I said, well, when you first came in here and I said to you, would you prefer to play at least 75%, maybe 80% of the games rather than 50 he says, absolutely. I said, maybe even 85, 90%. But I said, in doing that, there are times when the coach is going to pull the goalie for various reasons. Maybe your play, maybe the team's play, maybe to get the, the attention of an official. So anyway, he didn't like it. But once I told him that story, I said, now, do you remember that agreement that I said that you get pulled a little bit more than normal, but I'm going to play you a lot more than you've ever played? He said, Yes. That was the end of the discussion, and I walked away. So uh, he had a fiery temper, just like Hextall. They were on fire, and, and uh, in the locker room, they were on fire as well. So if, if, there, if the team wasn't doing what we thought they should be doing, he'd be the first to tell them and tell them to pick it up because he could back it up. And, of course, interesting relationship. Dominic was an unknown goaltender, so unorthodox. Uh, you know, Trechak had a big influence on him, him as well. But uh, two interesting characters, both had unbelievable different superstitions. Okay. And uh, and the, it, it worked out well though for our team. We talked about the draft off the top, and there's a guy, Eddie Bell, for a Hall of Famer, as I you draft. mentioned, undrafted, uh, wins an NCAA title with North Dakota, not drafted, signs as a free agent. So you just never know what the path is going to be, do you? You don't, Scott. And another guy I'll just throw in there very quickly, played for me in Calgary, was Curtis Joseph. He was not drafted either. So, you know, there's some two great stories, but we're talking about Eddie, and that's a, a super story, undrafted, wins championships at all levels and, and goes into the Hall of Fame. So for those youngsters that are listening to us or, or watching us, uh, don't give up hope even if you didn't get drafted the, the, the last week because uh, anything is possible if you're determined. So goalies are quirky and they probably have to be because of the position. Yeah. Who, who volunteers to go stand and have rubber shot at your head all the time? I did as a kid. <laughs> My son did. So it's fairly common. But when you've got a strong personality like a Belfour who's a character, um, as you mentioned, fiery, same with a Ronnie Hextall. As a coach, do you just try to stay out of their way as much as possible? Well, the biggest thing you can do is give them the assignment to play, and that's all they want. The rest of it is up to them. As I said, even the trainers couldn't go near him, couldn't touch his equipment, and couldn't definitely not ever sharpen his skates. No one could touch his skates. 
and uh, he had that that preparation time, and that's how he he molded himself and prepared himself for each and every game just by standing there for I'm not exaggerating like an hour sharpening. I mean, the only thing I said to the trainer is you're going to have to go buy some extra extra blades because he's going to grind them right down to they're nothing. So. Uh, but he, he took it in stride too, you know, it was a big setback for him to be told you're not quite ready. And, and that's a hard evaluation knowing how important the goaltender is to your club. And, and we talked about it with that transition from Pelly Lindbergh to Ron Hextel in Philadelphia. And, and I wanted Ronnie to be brought up to him. Bobby Clark said, he's not ready. So maybe I learned something to become a, the general manager then to have the patience, although the coach is saying one thing uh, to myself and saying, uh, let's get this goaltender in here. And then the other side is saying, no, we have to be patient. So uh, definitely some uh, great records with, with Eddie and, and the time he spent in Chicago. And then of course went on to Dallas and uh, won the cup. And I think you might've been the guy that gave him the nickname, the Eagle. Yes, I was. And uh, at the time, the Olympic uh, Winter Olympics were on, and there was a fellow, uh, I think he was from England. Yeah, Eddie the Eagle. Yeah. Eddie the Eagle. And he was flying, and I caught it on the video in the room one day, uh, broadcast from the Olympics. And, I, and Eddie was sitting there. I said, Eddie, you fly like an eagle. You're now Eddie the Eagle. And it, it stayed. I have no idea why, but... And I have no idea why he even wanted to call him Eddie the Eagle, but uh, he got the eagle on the mask and had his mask painted with the eagle, and he 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 uh, was flying in his career at that point. So maybe, as we say, they had some interesting, uh, quirky uh, moments, and that's probably another good example of one that uh, he liked that nickname, and then he had his his face mask painted with the eagle and, and uh, performed like he was an eagle. And he got crazy, Eddie, as a nickname for sometimes in his career. So, Oh, yeah. He, he had some, uh, uh, some diversion, if you like, off the ice from time to time. And his wife would phone me after a game and said, have you seen Eddie? I said, no, I haven't. But if you can't find him, call me back. And of course, she never did because he always would show up. But uh, in Chicago, he and and the characters we had in that club, uh, Sunday nights in particular, because that was the, the end of the weekend. I always give them Mon- Monday off. We 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 changed the the schedule in Chicago from Wednesdays to Thursdays during the week for the home games, and then of course Sundays. So we played, you know, it meant we had to play back to back games in the weekend quite often, or Thursday, Friday, and then Sunday, or you never played three in a row, or play Thursday and play Saturday, Sunday. But Monday, they always knew they had Monday off, and then we practiced for two days consecutive, which was a, a, a big turnaround in terms of NHL coaching. And uh, he had his, uh, his moments where he was well-known in Chicago throughout, throughout the city. <laughs> a few were. Um, exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, you mentioned, uh, and I should say, 484 career wins, fourth all-time amongst goaltenders, so uh, an amazing talent. And as you mentioned, you got you to a Stanley Cup final in 91-92, won a Stanley Cup with Dallas. He was part of the 2002 Canadian Olympic team. He didn't play, but he was 
third goaltender on that team. So an amazing career. Now, at the same time that you had Eddie, Dom, as you mentioned earlier, Dominic Hoshik was on the scene and quirky guy in his own right. Very quirky. And at that time, very unorthodox in terms of style was really um, something that no one had seen in terms of the way he was a puck stopper and acrobatic and flipping and flopping all over. And primarily, uh, and if we tell the story again about Dominic, how did he get the Buffalo? Well, that was the year of, I had the both of them, it was the year of the, of the expansion. And excuse me, I gotta put this phone away. It's not supposed to ring. I had it on silent, apparently not. Anyway, uh, we had Dominic and Eddie and we had to make a choice. So um, there were a lot of discussions about Eric Lindros that particular year. And uh, I went to Quebec City to visit with Pierre Paget and tried to make a deal to get Eric to come to Chicago. And it didn't turn out because uh, that's another story. When we thought we had a deal, uh, uh, Quebec came down the, 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 the draft floor. It was in Quebec. And Marcel Bou uh, apparently had agreed to the trade that we had made with Pierre. And I'm telling the story because it was involved the goaltenders. And uh, at the last minute, Mr. Obu said to Mr. Wirtz, I want $5 million besides the players. And of course, Bill Dollar Wirtz just about threw him out of, the, out of the room, which he did throw him out of the room. So he just simply walked down the hall, went into the Philadelphia Flyers uh, lounge and made it a better deal for $15 million. Nonetheless, we have Dominic and Eddie. And so the deal with the Rangers, too, we should have mentioned. But that's yeah. for another show. Right. So uh, what happens is we're trying to make a decision about this because you can only protect one goalie now. So <clears throat> I decide after that trade was nullified, uh, Eddie was going to be involved in the trade and or Dominic. So it fell through, and we ended up protecting Eddie. Uh, Eddie had more consistency and it was more of a known player to us than Dominic at the time. So I traded uh, Dominic to, to uh, Buffalo and John Muckler was the general manager at the time. And John didn't really know, but he needed a goalie. And that was a time where you had to come up and fill that space because of the draft, the expansion draft, and, and you only protect one. But uh, what had transpired thereafter, uh, I got a kid named Christian Rutu in a draft pick, I believe. And, and then John, as we said, watching this really unorthodox character in the net, decides to put him on waivers. So I phoned the NHL up and said, I want to select Dominic Hasek off of waivers. And they said, well, you can't because you've traded him. I said, what kind of rule is that? Just because I trade him, I want to put my name in. I was the only one who put my name in. He went through waivers. Dominic Hasek went through waivers. Not one team in the NHL could picked him up and could have had him for free. 
the rest is history. He goes on and wins an MVP in Buffalo and becomes obviously the backbone of their team. Uh, but it, just because of his, and we talked about the different quirkiness about different goalies, his quirkiness was on the ice, the way he would flip-flop. And, of course, he went on uh, and had a great career as well. So uh, interesting story on Dominic. And, and uh, even in the last game against Pittsburgh in the Stanley Cup final, I pulled Eddie and put Dominic in, and he was unbelievable in that one outing that he had in the portion of the game. So, again, things happen in the game that uh, sometimes aren't explainable, uh, but uh, sometimes uh, the timing of it all is is uh, impacted by some of the, the decisions you have to make as a manager. And, of course, this one was protecting only one goalie. If we could have protect both of them, obviously we would have. And I think – that appearance was the fourth and final game of the Stanley Cup final in right. uh, in uh, 92 against the Pittsburgh Penguins, the sweep. And as you say, circumstance plays into everything. So you've got a Belfour, you've got to make a hard decision, and Belfour is a Hall of Famer, so it wasn't a bad decision, obviously. Right. And I think at the time, if memory serves, uh, Muckler, John, might have had Grant Fuhr in Buffalo at that point, who obviously they've been together through five Stanley Cups with the Edmonton Oilers. So another situation that didn't exactly, it wasn't a, a wide open door, let's put it that way. Exactly. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we're going to talk about all kinds of stories I have, but the, the Grant Fear story is coming to St. Louis, what I'll tell at another time. But how, how did we get him? And, and his career was extended. He, he played for many years thereafter, even though he was injured in the trauma series. Yeah, went on to play for the Leafs at, at one point as well, and uh, another Hall of Famer. Um, and, you know, the dominator, as you say, it was it, that quirky style of guys who come in on breakaways, or there'd be that loose puck coming over the blue line, and he comes flying out of his net, chasing after the puck, sliding out to the blue line and, and beyond. I mean, as a coach, when you're watching this, what's going through your head? You just, as long as he stops it. That was my uh, my really relationship I had with any goalies. I didn't try to change their style or change who they were or influence them. But I said, you want to stay in the net, you have to stop the puck and you have to win games for us. And that was pretty simple. I mean, they all had – I coached seven Vesna Trophy goalies and they all were completely different in many different ways. Style – attitude, personalities, off-ice, preparation, training. I mean, Eddie was a fitness, fitness nut. And Dominic was very fit as well. So they were lean and, and uh, they learned to handle the puck really well with Trechak assisting them. Uh, Vlad really worked on that. I would, I would leave practice and I'd be going from the coaching office in the old Chicago stadium up to the front office for my general manager's duties. And it would be a good hour and the three of them would still be out in the ice. And, you know, the Soviet union mentality, you got to put hours in and, and uh, Mr. Trechak made them stay and they didn't mind. They loved it. They had a great time and they, they saw their, their, their ability improving. So that was really important, but, he had a super influence on them, and they would say that today. I mean, Eddie and 
and uh, great friends, you know. And uh, uh, when I go to Russia and went to Russia, he always, first of all, he, he'd tell everybody that he worked for me, that uh, uh, he worked for the coach and would go fly to Chicago once a month. He'd come over from Moscow and, uh, and then stay for a week and practice and then fly home. So we segmented when we were at home and had time for him to have practice. So uh, very, very interesting two goalies in that city, we had a number of other goalies that uh, we went through. Uh, some became great broadcasters, Darren Pang and, and uh, Greg Millen was a broadcaster. So there were a lot of different personalities, but those two really stood out and had super careers. And how, how did it come to pass that you got Trecek to come over? Well, he was looking for, I don't know exactly, it was kind of a fire reach thing and, and we contact him. Would you be interested? And he said, of course I would. And, and maybe uh, it influenced uh, like Chicago Blackhawks first uh, Russian player was Igor Kravchuk, which I also signed and drafted him watching him as a captain of the national team and Tikhanov wouldn't let him come over until that year we went to the finals until the Olympics were over. And once the Olympics were over, then Igor was on a plane the next day and off to see us. And he, he, we'll have him on one day because he could tell you the great, the great story about how he got released from that team. And then when he did come, I can tell, uh, you know, tease the, the, the audience a little bit that the negotiations lasted all night when he arrived. He hadn't had a contract yet. So we played a game, negotiations started after the game. And I walked out that morning, was, the sun was up uh, when we finally got his deal done. But uh, again, uh, we tapped into the, to that p possibility and it worked out. I don't know who he got permission from, uh, but he had a, a lot of influence. He was a, he's a hero today and was definitely a hero in the Soviet Union and Russia. Uh, so maybe he had some clout with the president to be able to come over and, and, and to work with us. Maybe it was a gesture of goodwill. I'm not sure. Is it because uh, the Russian people, the Soviet Union people knew me because of Canada Cup? They knew who I was. I don't know why he was allowed. I never did ask him, but uh, he certainly enjoyed it and they enjoyed working with him. So you'd mentioned, just to circle back a little bit, you mentioned in the, those Lindros trade talks that one of the two goalies was going to be involved. Which one did they want? They wanted Eddie. They wanted Eddie because, again, nobody wanted, knew what, uh, what was in store for Dominic at the time or how good he could be. And uh, it was a multiple deal. I think there was five players from both teams. Uh, that they would have, we'd have to give up more better players than they did. They were talking about prospects and younger players that probably never made it uh, because Eric was the centerpiece of the discussions. But when, when uh, the announcement came that they wanted 5 million and Pierre Paget didn't know that, that uh, Mr. Obu was going to do that. Marcel was going to walk in and, and uh, we thought, well, we're going to, shake hands on the deal and make the deal and announce it. And he said, by the way, I need $5 million. And that's when Mr. Wirtz said, 
Mr. Ogu, I suggest you leave our suite right now. <laughs> so again, uh, and he literally, I watched him walk down the, the hall and went into the Philadelphia Flyers suite and made the deal. And as we said, he made another deal with the New York Rangers. And I don't know, Toronto was in on the talks that night. You were in with Chicago. Probably the Rangers were in, Philly were in. There's a few other teams. And it went all night right up, leading up to the draft, right? It really did. But we, we were out of it early because he came to our room, I believe, first. <laughs> and once he started asking for money, he said, okay, five didn't work. I'll try something more. So, and it did work. Interesting stories about hockey and what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, no question about it. Especially when money starts to get involved as well. We saw exactly. a, big, a few big transactions back in those days. You think of the Gretzky trade, the Lindros yeah. trade, some big money deals. There really were. And, and uh, it opened the door in many ways for the players. Wayne, of course, opened the door for all the players to make more money. And then, of course, the owners at the time were exchanging finances. So money uh, going every which way from time to time. And and uh, we'll tell us some other stories too, Scott, that as I'm talking about the Blackhawks and my relationship and Bill Wirtz was the chairman of the board for the owners. Alan Eagleson uh, was one of my agents. Rob Campbell represented me most often, but Alan represented me in the Chicago deal and John Ziegler. And I could tell stories about the three of them meeting in Mr. Wirtz's home discussing and I have no idea why they invited me. I was sitting there like a bump of the log. I never said a word, but they always wanted me to be, to, to be there to listen. And uh, so those were interesting times. Yeah, and Eagle, of course, was heading the Players Association. Exactly. Ziegler's the NHL president. Yes. Wirtz is owner and chairman of the board. And uh, yes. I know they had a few meetings uh, down in uh, Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, Florida, when the governors would convene on uh, Mr. Wirtz's yacht, the Blackhawk. So, yeah, and they also different arrangement a, back then. They also had a meeting when when we went to London, England, and we played uh, Montreal and Toronto, and uh, we went to a castle one night, and they had a meeting in the castle over dinner. My family was with me, and uh, Bob Pofford's family, and. Their families were with them, and they all of a sudden started this meeting about what's going to transpire in the NHL between the relationship of players and and ownership and and uh, the president of the league and how he was he was going to uh, uh, be involved in all this. So it was very interesting times. All righty. So with that, we will wrap episode number seventeen. More great stories on Eddie Belfour and Dominic Hoshik. A little Eric Lindros, Bill Wirtz. So we, we yeah. touched a few corners and uh, more to come. And uh, as I say, we'll have some uh, more stories about some of these great players that you coached in the, in the episodes ahead. And uh, we'll have, as I say, some on to visit with us to share more of their stories to get the other side of the story in some cases. I'm sure they can tell some great stories to about our relationships and uh, what transpired in terms of their perspective and how they saw what was, uh, what was going on. All righty. Until uh, episode 18, uh, to you, Mike, and everybody watching and listening, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we will talk to you soon.